Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Katina Rogers about her work examining how we can put the humanities PhD to work and thrive both in and beyond the classroom. Welcome to the show, Katina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about this really important topic. I know it's of great interest to listeners who are wondering what they can do with their degrees and how they can make the humanities relevant in their life after graduation. But before we dive into that, would you please tell us about yourself? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Um, So I have a PhD in comparative literature that I earned from the University of Colorado in 2010. Um, And now I live in Brooklyn. I live here with my husband and my two kids who are um, almost five years old and eight years old. Um, I've worked in a number of different higher ed spaces and higher ed adjacent spaces, uh, most recently at City University of New York, uh, but also at the Modern Language Association and the Scholarly Communication Institute and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. So um, I have really enjoyed over the last 10 years or so getting um, a pretty prismatic view, I think, of how higher ed functions, um, not only within the university, but from lots of different perspectives around it as well. If you could take us back to when you were trying to decide about college, did you know what you were going to major in? Did you know what you wanted to do with it? How were you making your decisions? Hmm. Um, I, that's, it's so interesting to, to think back to those decisions before undergrad. Um, I always really loved stories and I, I was a kid who was very introverted, um, quite shy. And I think I took a lot of refuge in books, um, 
and not only that they were kind of an escape for me, but even more than that, I think that books really helped me to find words for things that I didn't know how to articulate, things that I didn't really know how to even identify as um, feelings or perspectives that I might be experiencing or wondering about. And so books were always really important for me. Um, I also always really loved languages. And um, those two shared interests really carried me into um, what I wanted to study as an undergraduate student, um, which was uh, French and English and, and Spanish as well. And I didn't know at the time, actually, that comparative literature was even a thing that existed. I didn't have much context for um, what different graduate programs looked like. And so I didn't know that there was a field that combined these these interests that I had. But I just found that I really wanted to keep going with understanding words, understanding stories, um, thinking about the ways that people um, like made meaning for themselves and, and articulated that meaning in ways that were interesting and pleasurable and thought-provoking for, for other readers. And so you, you did your undergraduate degree. How did you decide you wanted to do a graduate degree? I am so thankful to a couple of faculty members that I had as an undergraduate student who started talking to me about the possibility of grad school. It really was not something that was on my radar. Um, my immediate family college was really important um, to my parents. Um, it was something that was um, kind of always an expectation for my brother and I that we would go to college, but um, there was less experience in my family around um, further education beyond that. Um, and so it hadn't been something that I had thought about until a couple of different faculty members, uh, my junior year and then senior year of college pulled me aside and, and talked to me about what I was thinking about doing um, in the future and whether I had ever considered graduate programs. Um, I should also add, I my undergrad um, college that I ended up going to was called Wheaton College. It's in Illinois, and it was um, quite a conservative um, religious college, um, a small liberal arts college with a really good academic background as well. But um, the the sense of vocation and spirituality and religion were also things that were quite present in, in my experience as an undergrad. Um, and so thinking about um, questions of service and meaning and value um, in the community and in the world were things that were really deeply present for me all the way through. Um, I'm also really thankful to these two faculty members for talking me through what the application and admissions process looked like, particularly at the moment when I was admitted to a couple of different schools, one with funding support and one that was more prestigious, but with no funding at all. Um, and I was able to talk to them about what that meant. And um, I am really grateful to their advice that I ended up going with the option that that had funding. And so I was able to go to grad school without incurring debt, you know, without um, without putting myself into a financially precarious position. And um, I think a lot about how differently I might feel about my future career choices if I had made a different decision at that moment. And when you were in grad school, did they start counseling you at all about what the landscape was going to look like after graduation with your degrees? Oh my gosh, I no, uh, I wish they had. I felt like I had no idea. Um, I uh, I connected with my advisor pretty quickly and stayed with with one advisor throughout my time as a grad student, and he did talk to me a little bit about. Um, you know, what I had in mind and whether in particular what he wanted to know was whether I was trying to choose a dissertation topic 
with the academic job market in mind. And he really advised against that, which um, I, which I appreciate. He he didn't think that trying to tailor one's academic pursuits to what you think the job market might be doing, the academic job market might be doing, you know, five, six or seven years down the road. Um, he didn't see that as, as a valuable way to spend the years um, of study as a grad student. Um, so I, I did have that conversation. But other than that, I really didn't. And I started as a teaching assistant as soon as I started um, my grad program. I had no pedagogical experience whatsoever. Um, I was barely older than the students I was teaching. I was younger than a lot of the students I was teaching. And I think a lot about how even that fact of being put into a classroom so immediately with so little preparation Yes, I learned what I was doing and I got through it, but I think that that was really a disservice to the students that I was teaching. And I think that it's a sign of how devalued teaching is as a craft and as a professional skill, even within higher ed, where this is supposed to be, you know, so much the, at the heart of what we're doing. Um, to to put people in positions where they're teaching without any experience or um, or background in it shows that there's not enough of an appreciation, even within the system, for how meaningful and impactful and really beautiful skilled teaching can be. Um, so that was a very long answer to your question. But no, I did not have much of a sense of like what came after graduation. I, I don't even think that I had a sense that most people went on to become faculty members. I was really, really green in what graduate school looked like, what that terrain looked like, and what was expected of me both during and after. No, that wasn't a long answer. It was a great answer. And it made me think about uh, a similar experience I had in grad school. I looked younger than I was. And you know that you look young when people younger than you think you're younger than them. <laughs> and it's really um, a disadvantage when you have to be at the front of the class trying to lead the class mm -hmm. because there's such an assumed um, authority for the professor. And yet you don't have it. You don't have the PhD and you don't feel confident inside yourself that you have the pedagogical training, and you may not really know the particular subject that they've thrown you in to teach. Mm -hmm. I can think of one example specifically where they, they let me know probably two weeks before the semester started what I was going to be doing. And I said to them, this isn't actually an area of history that I've ever studied. Mm -hmm. And they said, that's okay. You just have to be one chapter ahead of your students. <laughs> I had the same experience with the semester of teaching Norse mythology. I, it's not a time period or an area that I knew anything about. And again, I, it just felt like such an injustice to the students who were in that class. Um, and I think that your, your observation about assumed authority is really important. And Age is certainly one thing. Gender is a part of it, but also race and ethnicity. And I, I'm white. And, you know, as a white woman in the classroom, yes, on one hand, I looked young, uh, I was young. And um, and that can be, I noticed that my male colleagues who were coming in with the exact same amount of experience had less difficulty most of the time Um navigating that perception of authority. But I think it's even more true for women of color who are in the classroom, who are often fighting a pretty constant battle to um, 
demonstrate that they deserve the, you know, the trust of their students, that they have the credentials that, um, you know, that have brought them to the front of that classroom. And the more energy people have to put into asserting their position of authority and expertise, the less they're able to dig into the meat of what they're teaching. And I, I think that that's really an unfortunate distraction and, and a really real classroom dynamic for a lot of people. It is. And it really affects for a lot of uh, grad students how they feel about teaching in general. As you said, it can come across as a very devalued part of what a professor does. Um, and it can leave some people feeling that they don't like teaching because that's their experience with it. And they hope that if they become a professor, they get to spend most of their time on research or projects and delegate the teaching to their grad students instead of helping us all feel confident in our skills in teaching, whether we're teaching in a classroom or communicating our area of knowledge to people far outside academia in our jobs to understand that teaching is such an important thing and that we can feel confident in it and like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that it's, there's a couple of things that come to mind in what you say. One is that, yes, teaching can feel devalued for those reasons. And that can leave students, you know, wanting to, um, to be able to focus more of their time on, on research as they shift towards their later careers. But also, for people who are in tenure track faculty positions, I mean, looking at what's valued within a tenure folder, um, research tends to be more highly valued than, than teaching as well. There, We have, I think, somewhat better metrics of being able to indicate whether someone's research um, is of high quality or not. I mean, for teaching, a lot of the time we, re- we uh, rely on student evaluations, which have been shown to be incredibly biased. And I think not ultimately a good indicator of of someone's skill, you know, without having um, their peers who are also skilled in the same um, in the same areas being able to observe and and reflect on what's going well in the classroom. Students aren't necessarily the um, the best arbiters of of whether someone is a skilled teacher. Um, and so I think that the the value systems that we have in place in the spaces where we're formally evaluating someone's work also tend to skew towards research. Um, I think it's not a coincidence that research is often a more solitary pursuit, at least in the humanities. It's something that I think gets associated with, you know, the idea of um, kind of a solitary genius. It's something that's often a little bit more masculine in its connotations um, than teaching, which tends to be a more feminized part of the profession. And I, I think that there are many areas of, um, of faculty work that are more feminized areas, um, things that emphasize care and community and collaboration um, that tend to be undervalued. I think mentorship is another really big part of that. And it's something that can make a huge difference in a student's trajectory, but it's something that um, isn't often formally rewarded within someone's professional space. It's interesting that you bring those up. I was thinking back to that class where I was a chapter ahead of my students and 
I did lean into what you're calling the more feminized skills. I said to them, do you want to have a session before the midterm that's just a study session? You all come in and bring your questions and we'll all work together to make sure everybody has the same understanding of these key topics. And do you want to do that again before the final? And do you want to come in and have one session before the paper is due that really goes through what's a strong thesis and what's a strong conclusion? And how to organize in a in a logical fashion what you're going to be saying. I kind of leaned into the mentoring uh, aspect and the undergraduate skills that I had developed to bring to them because topically I literally was a chapter ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that you know a lot of that is really good pedagogy, being able to give students agency and how the course unfolds. But um, you don't want to be doing it under situations where you feel like you. You have to because you don't have the mastery of the subject, you know. Um, but it is, I, I think that it's, for me, thinking about what the different components are of um, of faculty careers, given that faculty careers are still often the default um, assumption for lots of graduate students, especially PhD students in the humanities. Um, what are the things that are valued within that space and how are students watching their faculty mentors to see where they're putting their time, where they're putting their energy and learning to, um, you know, to do the same, to mimic that. Um, I have been thinking a lot about um, the English department at CUNY Graduate Center, where I used to work. Um, They have set up a new formal mentorship structure where instead of a student working only with um, their dissertation advisor, for instance, um, they have uh, kind of mentorship clusters that bring together newer students, older students, and at least two faculty members who are, um, you know, one more junior, one more senior within the department. And I think that that's really valuable to be hearing this multiplicity of voices in the guidance that a student is receiving, because the the voice of the mentor takes on such weight as students are trying to navigate where to invest their time, what to do next, um, how they're doing. So much of it feels very subjective. And the advisor is the person who um, they're, you know, bouncing things off of and seeing what comes back, what the reflection is. But academics don't usually agree on things. And so even just by having a couple of people in the room and being able to hear them say, well, actually, I don't know that I would do it that way. I think that gives students a lot more um openness in finding their own footing of what feels right for them, you know, trusting their own judgment and intuition a bit more, while also, you know, modeling the expertise of the people who have gone in in the paths ahead of them. But I also think the other piece of this is that there's so much about teaching in particular that is really applicable to other professions, which is something you hinted at a few minutes ago. And I think that the fact that it remains really difficult to try and talk about these translatable skills that can be used um, when, you know, writing for a non-specialist audience, for instance, a lot of that is really similar to teaching, thinking about how you curate the kinds of information and narrative that that are going to be meaningful and how you distill that into something that is both approachable for a non-specialist audience, but that brings them along to a new place and and, um, teaches them something and leaves them with insights and questions of their own. All of that is teaching. And it, I think that making that leap towards a more um, public or applied type of humanities work maybe wouldn't feel as 
difficult as it sometimes feels if we thought about that bridge as being to teaching rather than only through research? My first year of grad school, uh, I was in a master's program and it wasn't a funded program. There wasn't an option for that. So I was working three jobs at the same time to put myself through grad mm-hmm. school. And one of them was that I was working at a small museum. And as many people who've worked in small nonprofits know, you can end up wearing many hats. Mm-hmm. I was formerly um, working in the museum education program, but I, I often did a majority of um tasks that, you know, needed to get done. And I really loved working in museum education. Um, I did all the things. I created the the curriculum and implemented it and ran the programs. And it was really something that I enjoyed so much. I think partly because as an academic, it can be a long time before you see any results of what mm-hmm. you've done. And if you are in a public-facing a role like that. You get to see results every time the kids show up and you mm-hmm. teach them something and they leave, you know, saying, I can't believe I learned how to, you know, dye fabrics using vegetables. And they're excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I noticed was that when I went into my PhD program where, where I was funded, and I would mention things like that, it it wasn't received with the sort of respect um, that is received when someone talks about having a more traditional academic teaching job. Can we talk about the role of power dynamics in the discussions of career diversity and the subtle messages that students might receive that one way of using your degree is more prestigious than another way? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the, the power dynamics are so important. I mean, I think I talk a lot, especially recently about um, you know, finding spaces of joy and abundance in graduate education. But I think that it's really disingenuous to talk about that without talking about the realities of power dynamics. Higher ed, especially graduate school, is such a hierarchical place, even in spaces that really value, you know, democratic participation. I think of places like CUNY where access and equity are really central values, both to the institution and to people within the institution. And yet these hierarchical um, relationships really color students' day-to-day experience. And so, you know, what I find happening in some spaces is that institutions will recognize that their students may be coming in with a desire to pursue faculty careers. Um, We know that the market for um, for tenure track faculty members in the humanities is not aligned with the number of people who are finishing PhDs and hasn't been for a long time. And more and more universities are recognizing that and layering in um, things like uh, career workshops, um, panels of people who have maybe graduated um, from the institution and who are doing really interesting things with their careers. Um, really valuable programming, I think, um, to help students build up the kinds of skill sets that they might need in a range of professions and to hear some of the voices of of what people are doing elsewhere. And yet, I think that if that is done in a way that feels at all separate from the intellectual heart of whatever is happening within the department, it's going to ring false for students because students still know that at the end of the day, what matters within the department is where is their advisor spending their time? Where, you know, where does their advisor think that they need to be publishing? Um, what are the things that are 
really going to count within the evaluative spaces, whether formal or informal, of their academic department home. And if all of the career conversations are happening outside of that in ways that don't necessarily tap into, um, you know, the scholarly values that the student might be working through and the subject matter that they're thinking about, if those feel separated instead of integrated, um, then I think that that is one of the things that leads students to feel like they might need to put on a particular face for an advisor to to talk about, you know, academic job possibilities with their advisor, but talk with their friends about um, about other kinds of things that they might be pursuing. Um, and so being aware of those power dynamics, I think, is the, a really critical first step to untangling those and to being able to um, talk about what the values are, both like the the explicit values that a department or institution might say that they're that they're working towards, but also the implicit values that may not be codified anywhere, but that students are still picking up on because they are very astute readers of people and astute readers of texts. Um, so I think that uh, you know anything that can be done to bring those power dynamics to light um, is something that can be an important starting point for students to be able to see like maybe some of the things that they're hearing are not, um, it, it may not be so much that there's an objective right way to do things. It might be something that's falling into a sense of prestige within the institution and what those implicit value structures are. When students have to put on a mask for their advisor and they can't talk about to go back to my example of working in museum ed and, and doing all these projects to, to teach history to, to children and teenagers, um, there's also a language loss in being able to translate on your CV what the heck you did at this job and why it might make you hireable for another one. Mm -hmm. I think of when I look at my CV, all the things I still struggle to know how to translate for a reader because I didn't have those conversations with other academics about what I was doing there. Mm -hmm. And because it didn't feel welcome. Mm -hmm. What you could talk about was I'm teaching this class for this professor this semester. What are you teaching? Do you have some resources for me to pull because I need to answer more questions for my students? Those are all very welcome. Mm -hmm. But how do I translate what I'm doing at my part-time job into marketable skills that highlight my academic tools? Those conversations get shut down if you have to wear a mask and speak only about certain topics. Mm -hmm. And that's so true on the individual level. And then it just gets magnified at, at a systemic level as well. And I think that that's how we end up with a real cultural disconnect between um, humanities programs and, you know, the value that we know that we can provide as far as the kinds of critical thinking and um, really deep examination and consideration of how different cultural matters are interconnected and the public view of what humanities programs do, which um, often doesn't align with that. And some of that, I think, some of that disconnect comes from a reticence in being able to talk more openly and enthusiastically about how interesting some of this stuff is and how interesting it is in, 
in public spaces and in community spaces, um, not only in um, the formal spaces of education in classrooms and in libraries and research, um, you know, research oriented work. Um, I think so much about how infectious other people's curiosity can be and how much the public loves to hear about that. You know, it's it's really a wonderful thing to um, to listen to someone talk about something that they're passionate about and to think about the ways that um, whatever this particular pet interest might be um, unfolds in um, in a particular community space. And I think that the more these mechanisms of prestige become codified, um, the harder it is to have those kinds of free flowing conversations and to talk more openly about these enthusiasms and about how we see our work applying in different contexts outside of the institution. And I, I think that this is also a side effect of that prestige economy and the the scarcity mindset that comes with it, where we're we're operating within a capitalist structure and capitalist logics. There's not enough of a particular type of position to go around. And so it leads people to kind of turn inward and and really focus on exclusively what those known markers of prestige are because they're trying to make it across those hurdles. Um, and so I think that all of these things are connected that if we can kind of break open those spaces of dialogue so that there is more freedom to talk about, um, you know, like the kind of work that you were doing in the museum and what that education looks like, what it looks like on someone's face to see them, um, you know, have these moments of, um, excitement and enthusiasm and interest and how that connects to some of the, um, you know, the, the deeper uh, research work that we might be doing, that those are not separate projects, but it's all a part of the same fabric. Um, I think that bringing all those conversations together is something that's really important for the health of humanities departments, in addition to uh, the health of individual scholars and their well-being and their career paths. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. You mentioned in the book that at the point that you were undertaking your graduate degree, there were already conversations going on about humanities were basically a dying field. Um, and we, in looking at your timeline and mine, we got our uh, PhDs during the same decade. So mm -hmm. I was hearing those conversations mm -hmm. as well. You mentioned that it was not a deterrent for you, that you knew that you wanted to keep going. When I heard them, they certainly didn't make me consider dropping out or quitting my program, but they did make me uncomfortable in public conversations where someone would come up to me and say, oh, you're getting a PhD in history? Are there any jobs for that? What mm -hmm. are you going to do with that? I would deer in the headlights in those moments. Um, can you talk a bit about how, how this conversation is sort of confirming itself? Sure, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that, I mean, nobody, nobody likes to be put on the spot like that, you know, where the assumption coming in to that question is that 
there are no jobs. There's nothing valuable you can do with it. There's a lot that's really laden within that question um, before it even reaches someone's ears. Um, and I think that that automatically puts someone into a defensive position um, that's not comfortable and that doesn't give someone a chance to speak in their best light. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's not really, it's hard for that to be on the backs of students to defend their profession when they're just entering that space. Um, and so what I would really love to see is more and wider conversations happening across all levels of the academy that create a lot more of that porosity across different spaces so that, you know, new students are not the ones that are encountering this sense of, oh, you know, what are you going to do with that? Um, I think that there's also, I mean, I'm, I'm really aware of the kinds of privilege that I carried into my own graduate school experience where, yes, on one hand, there was a lot that I just was really unfamiliar with. I didn't know. Um, and I, in fact, I, there's a lot that I didn't, I didn't know that I didn't know until much later and after I had finished my degree. Um, but also I had enough financial security that I felt reasonably confident I would be able to find something. And I don't know if that was, you know, some of that was some naivety on my part and just not, not really knowing what was going to come next. Um, and not everybody has that flexibility, you know, to be able to say, well, I'll, for instance, I, I worked at a temp agency for a while when I first moved to New York, and that was a great way for me to get a sense of some of the nonprofits and foundations in the area. But someone who's an international student can't do that because they need to have a, job, a work visa to be able to stay in the country. Someone who is, you know, a caregiver um, needs to have a little more security going into something. And so I'm, I'm really aware that, that the flexibility that I carried into my career path and which has been very meaningful for me it was also dependent on a certain amount of um, of solidity before I even got there. But to go back to your question, I mean, I I know that as someone who was coming into that graduate school space, I was really interested in what I was doing, but I was not at all confident. And I think that um, if if students have more examples ready at their fingertips of the kinds of things that people are going on to do, even just from within their own university department, there's usually lots of really, um, really interesting and unexpected examples of what kinds of careers people are pursuing. It makes it so much easier to speak to that question because um, you, there's more than one model um, that's already being, you know, imprinted on your imagination as you're coming into that student space. You ask us in the book to maybe change up some of the questions that you're asking. You want us to ask, why do universities offer humanities PhDs and why do people pursue them? Do you have some answers in mind to those questions? Oh boy. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this fact in your previous question about crisis and the rhetoric around crisis in the humanities. I think from the time that I wrote the book to now, a lot has changed in the context that we're in. I the, I wrote the book before COVID and it was published in July, 2020, um, right as we were all kind of, at least in New York, we'd been locking down for a couple of months, but still really did not have a sense of what was ahead of us. Um, and um, I think that one thing I would say is that I think that universities are in, a moment of crisis right now, and it's a crisis that can um, 
unfold into some really promising opportunities if people in leadership are able to take advantage of it. What I've also seen during the same time is that I think that humanities study has become important and visible and urgent in ways that were maybe harder to see before. Um, I think a lot about those first few months um, of the COVID pandemic and how little we knew about the virus and how much the discussion at that time was focusing on figuring out the science of it, the transmission of it, trying to find some kind of understanding in the patterns of infection that we were seeing. And I felt like it took a while before that conversation started opening up into spaces of connection with, you know, what is happening on a sociological level? Why is it that communities of color in New York City and immigrant communities were being hit so much harder than uh, neighborhoods that were wealthier and whiter? Um, what are the reasons that, you know, people who um, are already marginalized in one way are now, you know, finding themselves in a moment of more intense crisis relative to this this virus, which is supposed to be infecting people in, um, you know, without regard to um, to people's backgrounds or identities, and I think that that was really where we needed people with humanities and social science backgrounds to help make sense of what was happening and why, and how these layers were overlapping between, you know, questions of immunology and infectious disease, but also um, questions of socioeconomic status and, you know, decades and generations of racial injustice and um, uh, and housing patterns and schooling patterns and patterns of work. Um, what are the, what are all of the ways that we have these, um, these overlapping and interlocking things that are contributing to um, to the way that people are experiencing this virus. And I think within that, a lot of that is um, social science oriented, but then within that space, you also have people needing to find meaning, needing to find solace, turning to art because things are so difficult to express, looking to um, you know fiction that's been written in the past about other periods of, of plague and, um, and pandemic to see what kinds of things we can learn from the past, what, how people were navigating it, um, what it felt like, um, where people were finding joy, even in these moments of difficulty. Um, and so for me, I think the reasons that people might pursue a degree in the humanities, the reasons that universities offer degrees in the humanities has so much to do with meaning making, um, has so much to do with how we understand who we are, how we move through the world, and why that matters. Um, and that, to me, is really the heart of so much of what we do. And I think that that can get really lost in conversations about prestige, about merit, about um, you know where you're publishing. Um, those, to me, are not the questions. Um, the questions are much deeper than that. And I, I think that for most people who go into the humanities, a lot of that starts with a spark related to questions of meaning and identity. You tell us in the book that you worked on a project called Humanities Unbound. And one of its findings was that about three quarters of humanities grad students want a tenure track faculty job. We've touched on 
why that's not where most of the jobs are. Um, currently, about 80% of academic jobs are actually filled by contingent um, faculty. And so you tell us in the book that what we really need is to make a broader definition of what constitutes post-graduation success for humanities scholars. What would you like that definition to be? I think the things that I've mentioned about, you know, fluidity and porosity are a big part of it. I think that there's the question of impact is really hard to measure, and I would be hesitant to try and quantify, you know, how something matters within a community, how much, you know, how do we put numbers on that? I think that's really um, tricky and maybe not not terribly useful. Um, but I do think that having an expanded sense of um, where this work matters is really important. Um, I definitely saw this within public institutions that are have been fighting for funding for decades. We have see budgets that are just diminishing year by year and make it really difficult for um, for administrators and faculty to plan their work in a way that serves students. And I think again that part of this has to do with the split between public narratives around the humanities and university narratives around the humanities. But I think the other piece of this, I'm really glad that you mentioned the enormous percentage of precarious academic workers who are working as adjuncts or another short-term and usually low-paid um, uh, positions within the university. I think that this is the other part of it is that universities really need to value their own. Um, not only do we need to be celebrating the kinds of career paths that people have and have had for a long time that go beyond the walls of the university, but we also really need faculty and administrators to be fighting for better pay, better labor conditions for people that are already working within the university until we see a much deeper sense of value and pride in what that teaching work looks like, what, you know, what those, what people in those precarious roles are doing and how it serves the mission of the university. I don't think that only talking about, um, I don't think it's useful to only talk about like how wonderful it can be to be working in other spaces. I think that it has to be, that has to be paired with strong advocacy for labor conditions at the universities themselves. You mentioned to me off air that there's vocational rhetoric that affects how we have our labor structures in academia. Do you want to talk about what that vocational rhetoric is and why it is keeping us from organizing? I've noticed for myself, I'll just say that the vocational rhetoric that I had, um, you mentioned that you went to a undergrad that was also... Um, had a religious affiliation and I did as well. Mm -hmm. And while a lot of the vocational rhetoric that they shared also had sort of a religious layering and it made sense to me in a lot of ways to have a calling, to serve others, to, to see that your work needs to reach people beyond yourself and make meaning in their life. Um, it left me terrible at capitalism. <laughs> how do I, how do I advocate for a reasonable wage for myself? How do I know what that is? How do I get out of this sort of rhetoric that I wasn't steeped in and really learn about uh, capitalist rhetoric and still keep my values, but, but eat. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about how vocational rhetoric that we use in academia is not useful in 
the capitalist things that I just talked about. Yeah, I mean, I think that recognition of like the fact that we're working within a capitalist logic is really important. And I think that it's very uncommon to hear that talked about openly within higher ed spaces. More common now, probably, than it was when I was a grad student. But um, I think that this idea that people go to grad school to pursue studies that they love and you someone might continue to teach because it's something that you love, that you care about. This this idea of working for love, um, it's something that I think is very appealing on its face. This idea that, you know, we can be spending our time and energy doing something that fulfills us, that brings meaning, that we care about. All of that is very good. But um, I think that it's really easy for that to slide into um, cycles of labor abuse where you, you know, you build up this idea of people working for love, of teaching because you care about it, you know, think about the students, um, and then not paying people adequately for their work. And I think that within higher ed, there's there's this apprenticeship mindset of like, you know, you need to sort of keep pushing until you make it. You, you There's an expectation that things will be hard for a while. Um, and that you have to sort of follow in the footsteps of someone who's come before. Um, and also this rhetoric of love makes it very easy and tempting, I think, for someone to stay in underpaid adjunct positions um, and cobble together a living if they can from, from that work while trying to break through into a more stable um, academic position rather than recognizing that that work is not being supported as work and that that people deserve to be paid for their work. You know, this is a job like other jobs and the university is benefiting from your labor. Um, you also need to make sure that you're getting what you need out of it and what you need may change throughout the course of your life. Um, what you need may be monetary, what you need may be health insurance, what you need may be geographic location. And I think the important thing is recognizing that all of those needs really matter. And those are all things that go into how people pursue and decide on a job in almost every other field. Um, but there are very few spaces like higher ed where people are really discouraged from thinking about where they want to live in the world, you know, who who do they want to be near family? Um, you know, where, what are spaces that make them feel alive and connected to their community? Um, can they afford to go to the doctor when they have a health problem that needs to be addressed? Um, these are things that have to be part of the conversation about work. And I think what happens a lot in higher ed is that talking about money and talking about labor conditions um, is seen as somehow lesser than um, the, you know, these, this life of the mind or these conversations that are more cerebral. And I think that that's very dangerous because it's, it makes it hard for people, uh, for students, for instance, who are concerned about what their future might look like. It makes it hard to have those conversations when there's this sense of distaste about um, talking about the material conditions of our work. So I think that, um, you know, I don't, I don't mind the idea of people doing what they love. I think that that's really beautiful. And I think that a lot of people really do come into educational spaces because they care about the, the work of teaching and learning and research and knowledge. Um, and at the same time, I think that 
recognizing that those jobs are jobs within the economy that we live in and within the society that we live in um, is a really important piece of that conversation as well. And some of that vocational rhetoric masks privilege, something that we've touched on a bit during this conversation. Um, People who can make sacrifices for love are people have a certain amount of privilege or have a sense that things will somehow be okay. If you are from a disadvantaged group, that, that rhetoric further pushes you out of social justice, of diversity, equity, and inclusion, because we're not offering to pay you at a rate that's really going to make it possible for you to even apply for this job in the first place, let alone bring the talents that you love to use into this space. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, I think I've seen some really powerful labor organizing within university spaces, and that sparks so much hope for me um, to see the ways that people are are coming together, advocating for themselves, for their colleagues, for generations who may follow them. Um, I think that that work really matters. And so I, um, yeah, I just want to acknowledge that, like, that's one of the spaces where I really find hope in higher ed is in, in um, labor organizing. In the book, you talk to us about um, the importance of looking at how we're going to put the humanities to work beyond the classroom. And you mentioned that there are a few organizations who are really studying how graduate students can be better prepared for these jobs outside academia. One is the Woodrow Wilson Foundation. And you you say that they have really studied this, but not all... um, grad programs are, are able to implement the findings. Can you tell us a few of the key takeaways about how um, grad students can get better career prep at their university? Sure. I mean, and I think that one of the things you're referring to in the book is also the kind of the genealogy of work that's been done in this area over really quite a long time. And it it is something that both brings me hope, but also brings some frustration with it, because I do see that there, like, this is not a new conversation, you know, people have been talking about this for decades. um, And still, we, we see a lot of the same patterns happening within universities. Um, So that, that to me becomes frustrating. Um, I think what I would really like to see within universities is, change happening on multiple scales at once. I think that there are things often people feel like, you know, what, what can I possibly do? Like all of these decisions are being made at levels much higher than um, than where I'm at. I can't control. Um, I can't control. You know the decisions of how many adjuncts are hired versus tenure tenure lines, for instance. And maybe not. Um, but I think that there's always some sphere of influence that people have, and um, f- starting there can be at least a way in um, and can start pushing for change from below while people are also advocating from above. So within a single classroom, for instance, you might, as a faculty member, you might change what you're asking for from students rather than asking for um, an end of semester seminar paper. You might um, have students build a collaborative project together that has a different audience than just you, the faculty member. Maybe it's something that's um, geared towards a particular group within the community or something that um, aims to have an impact on an area um, 
that's more concrete or an area of need within um, within that particular disciplinary space. And I think that even just changing a single assignment within a single classroom helps students to have some anchors to grab onto of what intellectual work can look like when it has a different orientation. Um, so what does it look like to work with somebody? What does it look like to think about different audiences? What does it look like to consider things like you know, timelines and project management in getting something done, um, not only in terms of finishing a paper and submitting it in time, but um, all of the other pieces that have dependencies in different types of projects. So um, changing the ways that, um, that assignments are structured within classrooms, thinking about the kinds of advising conversations you might be having with students and um, making space for more open-ended discussions in, in, um, in those conversations, um, thinking really carefully about um, what might be implicit in some of the questions that you might be asking about students' future pathways, um, making space to really listen to what students are telling you and what they might not be telling you. Um, a lot of faculty that I've talked to feel concerned that they don't have expertise in all of the different areas where students might be interested in working. And I really think that that's fine. You know, it, students don't need you to map out their exact route for them. I think that what most students need is to hear that what they're thinking about is interesting and valuable and that you, their faculty advisor, are alongside them to think through some of these questions. Um, and so when, you know, thinking, thinking about these questions of implementation and why so much is staying the same, I think that the question of cultural change is the hardest it's the hardest needle to move. Um, people can, departments can implement all kinds of programming, but these questions of, you know, what is really valued within the department, that's the baseline that everything always returns to. And so until we start to see, you know, the things that are happening at a high level, grants that are being awarded, um, policies that are being shifted, until we see that coupled with things that are changing in day-to-day -day student life, faculty life, classroom life. Um, I think it's hard to, um, to feel like the culture of a program is really making headway in a particular direction. You've written an entire book called Putting the Humanities PhD to Work, which has so much advice in it for both students and faculty about thriving in and beyond the classroom. But for the listeners right now who maybe don't have the book yet, what would some advice be that you would like to offer to students and or faculty? Sure. Um, for students, I think trusting yourself, um, that, that might sound a little bit cliche, but I think that there's so much in graduate education that um, causes students to doubt themselves, their abilities, their worth. Um, you know, we see it when we talk about imposter syndrome, this sense that um, you know, that that students may not know all there is to know and therefore their voice doesn't matter. Um, I think that that's a really toxic uh, way of thinking and it's a, it's a pretty toxic part of the university. Um, instead, the, the more that you can be mindful of what it is that you need, what brings you life, what makes you feel excited and interested and engaged, keep a focus on that and don't let these senses of doubt pull that away from you. And that includes both things that are intellectual interests, but also 
like I was saying before, the material needs that you have um, within your life, both inside and outside of the university. I think for students also, it's really important for you to guard your time. And there's different seasons as a graduate student. There might be seasons where you want to be saying yes to every opportunity that comes your way because you are hungry to be meeting people and to be trying you know, trying on new spaces within the university, seeing what feels good and what feels interesting. But you also need to be mindful of the progress that you want to be making towards your own goals. Um, And if you have a timeline for when you want to be finishing your degree, it's really easy for those timelines to slip away. And so guarding your time, making sure that you are um, doing the things that you need to do to move yourself forward, including making sure that You've got a committee that really supports you um, and and asking your advisor for the kinds of support that you need to make that progress is really important. Um, Along with that, I think one of the most valuable things that you can do is find other people who make you feel supported. That may not be your advisor. It might be um, peers who you form a a writing group with or like a writing accountability group. Um, It might be something that you engage with completely outside of the university, um, some like a mutual aid organization in your neighborhood or um, something within your community that lets you feel supported and cared for and also caring of others. Um, Having those spaces before you need them, you know, having a network of people that you've built up trust with so that when you do find that you're in a moment of difficulty, you've got people that you can turn to, you've got relationships that you've built, that really makes a big difference. Um, And the last thing I would say for students is to um, really try and seek out and make use of resources even before you need them. I think um, especially for listeners who might be considering grad school or just starting grad school in the fall, you know, thinking about um, even if you don't know where you want to be 10 years from now, thinking about what that pathway might look like, it's not too early to start considering those questions. Um, there's a lot of really great resources like um, uh, Next Generation Dissertations, which is something that I helped Syracuse University work on to think about different types of dissertation projects and how the intellectual work within them can be evaluated. Um, Imagine PhD is another really great resource for mapping out your own interests and skills and getting a sense of what some possibilities might be as far as um, uh, applications beyond the, uh, the degree. And if you can think about those things before you are kind of staring down the final months of your dissertation timeline, I think that people can feel a lot more freedom to explore in those early stages, and it can feel um, a lot less uh like there's a lot less pressure on the kinds of things that you might be looking at. I tend to notice that when people are looking for different job opportunities, things like that, it's really hard to do that without adding on a layer of um, self-judgment, you know, oh, I'm looking at this job and this, it's, people automatically project themselves into what those futures would look like, which I think is really natural. But if you're doing that at the very end of your doctoral program, Um, the realities of what that might look like feel much more immediate than if you're doing it as a hypothetical, something that you might consider five or 10 years down the road. Um, So finding those resources early is really, is really a benefit, I think. 
And for faculty, I think just what I had mentioned about thinking about your spheres of authority and influence, thinking about the kinds of classroom assignments you present to your students, the kinds of mentorship structures you have, even if there's not something you know that you can formally change within your department, um, could you consider having an informal mentorship cluster that brings together more than just a single student and single faculty member in into that rapport? Thinking about what you model is also really important. You know, when are you responding to student emails? Um, when, what do you signal as far as where you're spending your time? These are things that students are absorbing like a sponge to see what is expected, what is valued. Um, and so really being mindful of what it is. You know, how do you treat academic staff? How do you treat staff within the university building? Um, all of these things affect how a student sees themselves within that space, how they consider their own future within that space. Um, and so I think being mindful of, of what those models look like is really important. And then what are you doing to fight for labor equity? Um, what are you doing to advocate for uh, the teaching structures within your department, um, for the, the labor conditions of adjuncts who are working within your department? Um, there's always more conversations to be had, more advocacy to be done. And so even as the day-to-day -day realities of teaching and mentorship and research take up so much time. Um, I would just love to see every faculty member, every administrator carve out some time to do some of that advocacy work as well. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I hope that it sparks um, some hope and some action. Um, I think everybody who is within a, a humanities PhD program has a depth of knowledge and interest and curiosity that is such a resource. And I hope that this episode helps people to feel like there are lots of different directions that you can move in, that there are actions that you can take today to um, help your own voice to have an impact, to help your students' voices to have an impact. Um, and I, I hope that it makes some of those problems and questions feel a bit smaller, that even though there are really huge structural questions about public funding for higher education um, and, and labor structures at the biggest levels, that there's also always something that can be done today. Um, and I, I hope that even just that sense of the questions becoming more manageable helps people to feel like they can move forward. And finally, in the few minutes we have left, would you like to tell us what you're working on now? Oh, sure. Um, I have been starting to work on what I think will be another book about higher education administration, but focusing even more deeply on a standpoint of abundance and care and joy. Um, again, like I was saying earlier in the episode, I think that this has to be embedded in a question of power structures and the very real dynamics of universities. Um, but I think that the more we can do to loosen that sense of competition and scarcity and instead to really think about what brings pleasure, what creates a sense of care and trust, um, what are the ways that we can foster a sense of abundance um, might create a much healthier atmosphere. The thing that I've been really inspired by, um, as people who have heard me talk about this may already know, but um, I've been thinking a lot about mushrooms lately, and um, I've I've really been inspired by thinking about 
the ways that there are these underground points of connection and resource sharing between the mycelial networks of fungi and the roots of plants, and that neither can um, exist entirely on their own, that the mushrooms cannot, you know, they don't have chlorophyll, they can't photosynthesize, they can't create their own sugars, um, but the plants really need the nutrients that the fungi are able to create um, and and pull from the soil um, and from the decay, the things that are, that are dead and dying. And I think that um, for me, thinking about those points of connection, the ways that resources are shared um, according to need, and then also the tensions between things like ruin and new growth. Um, these are the things that I'm thinking about. And so I'm, I'm exploring in this book how we might build programs that work really intentionally within those spaces of tension. How do we hold on to anger and hope at the same time and find a productive place between them? ruin and growth at the same time and find a productive place between them. <clears throat> Excuse me. I hope you'll come back and talk to us about that book when it's out. Dr. Katina Rogers, thank you so much for being here today and asking us to rethink our expectations about the humanities PhD and giving us a broader understanding of what constitutes scholarly excellence in the humanities as we all work to put the humanities PhD to work and thrive in and beyond the classroom. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again. <laughs>